This audio is brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton, originally airing on SiriusXM. From the campus of the University of Pennsylvania Wharton School, this is Leadership in Action on Business Radio. Welcome to Leadership in Action, Sirius XM's business radio powered by the Wharton School. I'm Mike Hussein, director of the Center for Leadership and Change. I'm here with Anne Greenhall, my friend and the deputy director of the McNulty Leadership Program, the Wharton School, University of Pennsylvania. You can catch future episodes of our show uh, every Friday at 9 a.m. Eastern here on Business Radio Sirius XM channel 132, and don't forget to follow us on Twitter. Uh, and today we have uh, a, a, an amazing guest I'm going to introduce in just a minute, but as is our custom, we do need to do about one minute on the week that was. Oh. So looking back on the last week, this is leadership in action. What caught your attention when it comes to leadership in action? Oh, Mike, well, you know, here's where my head was, so I'm going to just say uh, the importance of speech and speaking. And Mike, you have, you have such a wonderful quote in one of your books about leadership being at its best. When the vision is strategic, the voice persuasive and the results tangible. So I'm thinking for example of uh, President-elect Biden's response to the question about whether or not this will simply be another Obama administration. And the answer was absolutely not. The world we face today is much different than the world we faced then. So the power of speech really comes to yeah. mind to me. You know, it's a great point. And I really focused on that particular statement itself. It says so much about Biden as our president-elect but it also is such a good reminder that what we led uh, five years ago, or even mm -hmm. today, is going to be different from what uh, the president, for example, is going to need over the next four years. So just a good reminder. But Anne, that's a, a perfect segue into where we're going today. I'd like to bring on to our program now, uh, Sarah Hurwitz. Great to have you here, Sarah. Great to be here. Thank you so much for having me. Sarah, you have a, an amazing resume and that after finishing law school, and there may have been a couple other things in between, but you have become a senior speechwriter for four or five of the great figures in democratic politics uh, over the last decade. You were a speechwriter for President Barack Obama, uh, for the First Lady, Michelle Obama. You worked with John Kerry. Uh, you worked with uh, Wesley Clark, General Wesley Clark. You worked as a speechwriter with Hillary Clinton. You have seen a lot and you have written, no doubt, a lot of speeches. So to make it more personal to get going, how did you get into this business uh, after finishing off a, a law school degree? Yeah, you know, it's funny. I, I actually got my start in speechwriting as an intern in Vice President Al Gore's speechwriting office in the summer of 1998 in college. And the writers I worked for helped me get my first couple of jobs out of, out of college. You know, one was in state government, one was for a U.S. senator both of which were actually total failures. You know, I was 22 years old. I was a good writer, but I didn't really know how to write speeches. And after nine months, the chief of staff for the senator urged me to go to law school. She knew I had applied and she told me that was a very good idea. I should go as soon as possible, which was kind of crushing. <clears throat> but I went and my third week of class, I met a guy named Josh Gottheimer, who's now a congressman from New Jersey, 
But back then, he was a law school classmate who'd previously written speeches for President Clinton. And the two of us started freelance speech writing together. And he really taught me how you write to be heard rather than read and how you structure a speech. So then the two of us got jobs on the Clark campaign, the Kerry campaign. I got a job on the Hillary campaign in 08. They all lost, then got a job on the Obama campaign, and the rest is history. Fantastic. Uh, it's almost a parable for um, uh, all of us, and that is sometimes we end up where we didn't anticipate serendipitous events, somebody you meet, uh, but it looks like this um, glove has fit very well. You've obviously taken to the genre and uh, obviously you've done it very well. Give us a, a secret or two for writing a speech that will be given and not read. Yeah, so, you know, the difference, writing to be heard, writing to be read, yeah. two very different skills. Now, I'm just going to stop there. I just articulated three sentence fragments, but no one listening is thinking to themselves, well, that was ungrammatical. Those were sentence fragments. That's really the difference between writing to be heard and writing to be read. Writing to be heard is, it's ungrammatical. It follows speech patterns. So you don't have to worry about punctuation, grammar, things like that. And it's a little bit less formal. It's a little bit less, um, yeah, it's a little bit less formal. And I think oftentimes where people struggle is where when they're giving a speech, they write something that's really more meant to be read. So it feels awkward coming out of their mouths. That's why I always tell people when you're writing something that's meant to be read, edit it in the medium in which you have, in which it's going to be delivered. So don't edit it on your computer or on a piece of paper, actually read it out loud and edit as you go along. Yep. So you know, have a pen, edit each sentence. That's how you should edit it. So back to a comment that Anne made a, a minute before, uh, vital for anybody's leadership, whether presidential or in a company or a community center, whatever it may be, is the ability to communicate in a persuasive fashion. And you've just reminded us so well that to be persuasive orally is different from um, being persuasive in the, in the written form. So thank you on that. It's a great reminder. Um, Anne and I teach, we write, we got to know the difference and We'll come back to your thinking on that in a few minutes. But Anne, why don't you jump in? Yeah, Sarah, I love what you've said about, you know, the importance of writing to be heard versus writing to be read. And I'm thinking about a little bit that I have read about orality and literacy. That's my academic background showing. And the importance of repetition. So I'm wondering if that is also an element that's critical to speech writing. So I think um, kind of over a span of time, that is important, right? If you're going to drive a message, you need to repeat it over and over again. You know, successful campaigns, successful messaging efforts, they do rely on repetition because keep in mind, at each time you give the speech or de deliver the message, only a tiny population of the American people is probably going to hear it. So to reach more people, you're just going to have to keep repeating it. Um, but, you know, within the context of a speech itself, you know, you I understand that people really oftentimes focus on these kind of speech writing tricks, right? Like, oh, I'm going to repeat this mm. this word or this line, and I'm going to use alliteration. I'm going to do have a snappy sound bite. I'm really not a fan of that kind of writing. Mm. I think it sounds awkward. I think it sounds sort of sticky. I think that you know, it, it's almost an, a little bit insulting to people. You know, mm. when you're kind of delivering these canned sound bites, it doesn't sound like an actual person. You know, one of the one of the most important tips that I can give about good 
persuasive communication is to talk like a human being. So often in the business world, you hear people getting up, you know, these wonderful dynamic CEOs get behind a podium and they're like, we need to leverage our platform to catalyze our transformational unsilent, like, I don't even know what you do. Yeah. Or a politician will say, we need to put hardworking American middle-class family values first. You have never once turned to your spouse and said, hey, honey, I think we should really leverage our platform to catalyze some, you've never <laughs> turned to your neighbor and said, hey, Bob, you know, I really think we need to put hardworking American middle-class family values first. But if you wouldn't say something to one person, do not say it to many people. It doesn't actually get better. So, you know, sound bites, slogans, that's really a kind of speech writing that I think is a little bit more attuned to decades ago when the media was different, when you really would just get a couple sound bites on the evening news or in the morning newspapers. That's not how people consume media today. People watch entire speeches on their iPhones. People, most people are not getting their news from the New York Times or, you know, World News Tonight. They're getting it from their friends on Facebook, from videos. It's a very different media environment. And I think speechwriters who focus on the zinger soundbite, it's not the way to go. In fact, if, actually, if you look at President Obama's speech that he gave on the campaign in 2008 on race, you know, incredibly powerful speech, as was reported on this speech, John Favreau, who was helping him write it, like, you know, the night before, they went through and they actually scrubbed that speech of anything that could be picked up as a soundbite because they oh. really wanted the speech to be consumed as a whole. They didn't yeah. want one soundbite to be focused on. And I think that's a pretty telling about the, that approach, one that I, I share. Oh, Mike, do I have time for one more? Go for it. <laughs> okay, Sarah, all right. So I might be guilty here, but I'm a real sucker for the chiasmus. So the high point in the Biden speech <laughs> And when it became clear that he was going to be our president-elect was lead not by the example of power, but by the power of example. I was sold. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you know, I think I, you know, I guess it's really a matter of opinion. You know, I think I, I can see how some people would, would like that. You know, it's, it's not really my style, right? That's just not, yeah, it's just, it's sort of not, not my style. I think lines like that. You know, I think maybe, you know, for him, I think that line maybe worked. And I think it, it did kind of resonate with people. Um, but it's not really how I like to write. And I guess a lot of it just has to do with the the personality and sensibility of the speaker. Right. You know, mm -hmm. I, I think, you know, the Obamas kind of were less into the kind of, you know, those kind of lines. But, you know, some people actually employ them quite successfully, like mm -hmm. like President-elect Biden. You know, mm -hmm. I think that that line has really worked for him. And I think he's been very effective with his communication. You know, so much of being a powerful communicator is being a decent, authentic human being. Right? Yeah. And you just yeah. you can just feel his authenticity. You can feel his decency coming through. And it's mm -hmm. something really lovely to, to watch right now. Oh, that's great. Thank you, Mike. Sarah, I'm just going to remind everybody that uh, you are listening to Leadership in Action, Business Radio, Sirius XM, Channel 132. I'm your host, Mike Yuseem. I'm here with my friend and colleague Anne Greenhall, and our guest today is Sarah Hurwitz, former White House speechwriter for not only President Barack Obama, but the First Lady Michelle Obama. And Sarah, I want to stay on a point that you just talked through with Anne, and that is persuasive communication that sticks is the art form here. And in referencing, for example, the speech on race of President Obama, 
being scrubbed of sound bites so that people would absorb the whole the theme of the speech. Uh, are there other column devices like that that help people's words stick? And I'm thinking now of our listeners who often are leading uh, maybe just even a team, not nothing uh, super grand or could be a university, a community group, uh, a parent-teacher association. What other guidance would you have for helping them make their words more sticky with the audience or their thoughts? I'll put it more broadly. Yeah, I think the single most important piece of advice I can give, and this is relevant for every kind of communication, from an email to speaking at a meeting to a big speech, is show, don't tell which seems like one of those writing 101 things and people kind of dismiss it as a little bit simplistic or elementary, but almost no one does it. And basically any time that a communication is boring or unmemorable, it's because the person is telling and not showing. Now, what does that mean? You know, I, I can, I'm gonna give you two, version, two versions of the story of my friend, John. Version one, my friend, John is uptight, neurotic, exacting, precise, anxious, okay? Version two, I left my friend John alone in my kitchen for 10 minutes, and when I returned, he had alphabetized my spice rack and was centering the magnets on my refrigerator with a ruler. Now, if I call you tomorrow, <laughs> will you remember the list of five adjectives or will you remember the images? Great I mean, point. and a real life example of this is Michelle Obama's 2016 Democratic Convention speech. She did not start that speech by saying, on my daughter's first day of school in the White House, I was nervous, I was worried, I was scared, I was uneasy, I was afraid. What she said was, I watched my daughters climb into those big black cars with those large men with guns, and I saw their little faces pressed up against the window and asked myself, what have we done? Okay, you're never, our minds are not primed to remember lists of adjectives, they're primed to remember images. So taking this down a notch to, you know, being a leader who's maybe sending out an email, maybe you're sending an email to your team. You might, you could say, look, I know you all are working so hard, I know you're really stressed, I know it's been a lot, okay. Or you could say, you know, I see the empty takeout cartons in the background of your Zoom screen. I see your frazzled spouses trying to do all the childcare while you are just burning the midnight oil. And I'm really grateful to you, right? It's like, oh, wow, suddenly it comes alive. So generally, if you're using a lot of adjectives, no one's going to remember. You have, people have to be able to see what you are talking about. So, you know, we deliver a transformative product that will improve people's lives and blah, 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 like. I want a picture of what the product does. I need to see it. Sarah, I can't resist mentioning a comment from a person I sat next to at a dinner who said that she had left Beirut, Lebanon uh, because it was uh, becoming too dangerous. This is a while back. Even, even today, uh, there are issues there. Uh, but the way she said it is that she said it by telling and not claiming she said, uh, I put my two children in a car. We had a driver and I caught myself telling the two children who were being taken to their school, a, um, a private school, that if they're shooting to keep their head below the level of the glass. And she said, that, yeah. that is the, just a prime example of showing and not telling. Yeah. I will never forget that image, right? That is now <laughs> seared into my brain. Yeah, totally. I've never forgotten yeah. that statement. Um, give us a thought or two on openers and closers. Yeah, you know, it's funny. I think for openers, this really has to do a lot with the comfort level of the speaker. 
You know, I think that if you are a little bit uncomfortable as a speaker, I think it's good to have an opening that just gives you a little bit of time to get acclimated at the podium. So it might be just kind of doing a few thank yous to people in the audience, you know, just whatever you need to kind of just get your bearings before you launch in. I think that can be helpful. Um, for closers, I think it's it's often helpful to give a call to action to the audience that you're speaking to. You know, you're, you've basically, you're there to persuade them of something. I think it, it can help to really kind of end, end with a call to action. Um, but in general, you know, there's no one, I don't love it when people have this one formulaic approach to speech writing. There really isn't one. It depends very much on the speaker and very much on the venue. And this is something that people yeah. don't think enough about. You know, if you're giving, if you're delivering remarks to eight people around a conference room, that's a very different setup and approach than 8,000 people in a stadium both in terms of the format of the remarks you give, in terms of the tone, in terms of the formality versus informality, you really have to take that into account. Anne, over to you. Yeah, I'm just wondering, Sarah, how do you learn that? Or is it necessary, would you advise that uh, anyone uh, taking on increased responsibility have counsel <laughs> with a speech, speech writer? So, you know, it, it is something you learn by doing, to be quite frank. You kind of experiment, you see what works for you. But I do think it, it, it it's helpful to have the counsel of someone who's really an expert on this. Yeah. I mean, the truth is, oftentimes leaders, where they're going wrong with speeches, is they're actually using the wrong format for their talents. Meaning that some people are really good at reading verbatim speeches from an eight and a half by 11 piece of paper. Like that actually works for them. Some people are terrible at it. They'd be yeah. much better with bullet points or notes or note cards, you know, and you, and oftentimes when people switch the format, they're much more comfortable. Hmm. Also something as, as just tiny a detail as when you're used speaking from pieces of paper, only put text on the top third of the page, leave the bottom third of the page blank, because when you are, you know, looking at your speech as you're talking, if there's text on the bottom of the page, you basically yeah. look down, you touch right. your chin to your chest and you swallow yeah. your words you break mm -hmm. eye contact with the audience. You know, these are things that someone with some experience can really can kind of help you with. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I really appreciate your comment about format. And uh, Mike, you may have witnessed, seen this as well. Uh, I've noticed over the years that we have had uh, President Amy Gutman in her role, that initially she struck me as someone who was quite comfortable in a more intimate setting and over time became increasingly powerful in larger settings. So I could see, I felt even at a distance, I could see her development as a presenter. And you know, it's funny, I, it, it is like people have different strengths in terms of the venue. And one, one thing that drove me crazy is that when, when President Obama took office in 2009, we got a little bit of pushback about his speeches. Suddenly his speeches were less amazing and they weren't as exciting. And that just drove me crazy because the reality is you give a very different speech on a campaign to a yeah. stadium of 30,000 screaming, weeping people mm -hmm. than you do to 200 people sitting stock still in the very formal, ornate East Room of the White House, right? Yeah. It's a different venue. If you're giving this big lofty speech on hope and change and with applause lines, it's going to fall flat in that kind of quiet, small room. Mm -hmm. Also, there's a difference between a candidate and the commander in chief. It's a different tone. It's a different approach. So, you know, I can't emphasize enough how important it is to be sensitive to your venue. If you give a big rousing speech to that conference table of eight people, you will look crazy. If you give kind of a conversational, 
kind of informal chit chatty speech to 30,000 people in a stadium, it's not going to quite resonate. So venue, very important. Yeah. Thank you. Mike. Sarah, I've got a kind of a, not an oddball question, but I think it's a, it actually is a difficult question. As you have looked at American history, as well as contemporaries, uh, either naming names or not naming names, who would you single out as great speech givers? Yeah, you know, I I think the Obamas were both, you know, they are just the best of the best. Um, you know, just both of them have such an innate feel for the spoken word, the written word. They're just really naturally gifted communicators. So I think they're the first who come to mind. Um, I have to say, you know, I actually really impressed today by a lot of young people in public life. Hmm. You know, the, you know, I look at like the Parkland, Florida kids. You know, these, these kids are teenagers who've just gone through this horrible trauma and they've communicated so powerfully and effectively about it. They've actually begun to move the needle on the gun debate, which is just so hard to do in our, in our country. And I think a lot of the power of their communication, it is, it's the authenticity. It is not scripted, poll-tested sound bites that they're mm. sort of reciting at the American people. There's a real honesty and an, there's a real authenticity about it. And, you know, I'll tell you, I obviously have very strong feelings about our current and thank God soon to be former president, but he is quite an authentic communicator, right? There is, there is really nothing hidden about him. You know exactly who he is. There, there's no in real interior life there. It's, he's a very authentic communicator. And I think similarly, the Obamas were also quite authentic and that's what made them, I think, very powerful communicators. Um, you know, I think one is using, one, the authenticity is quite destructive to American democracy. One, it's actually quite helpful. Um, but I think that's that's quite important. You know, you've touched on a, a phrase we often, Ann and I often use in our teaching. We both teach leadership where we're located. And that is authenticity. Everybody knows as soon as you say that word, what we mean as we conjure up what's behind that word. But even then, it's hard to put, I find it's hard to put words on what exactly in the more micro sense of what people are doing illustrates or exhibits authenticity. So give us a couple hints on how to be more authentic. Yeah, you know, I think authenticity is, it's it's the sense that people have that your insides match your outsides, that what they're actually hearing and seeing from you is in accordance with what's really inside of them. And, you know, I think there's a few ways that you you do this well. Number one, you find the venue where you can be your most authentic self. Some people are not great behind a podium. Okay, put them in a, in a fireside chat format with um, an interviewer, right? Like that, that, some people are just more, they can let more of themselves show in that kind of format. The second thing I would say is, you know, at the end of the day, I think the key to authenticity is saying something true. Say something true. You know, just stop and ask yourself, what is the deepest, most important, most helpful truth that I can tell at this particular moment? And now you might need to filter that truth a little bit. You might need to be thoughtful about what's appropriate and what's not appropriate. But I think that oftentimes people focus so much on how to say something. You know, how will, how will the audience receive it? What do they want to hear? What words should I use? And they don't actually get clear on what precisely it is that they're trying to communicate. And I think a lot of being an authentic communicator is getting very still and, and very clear on what is true for you at this moment and then figuring out how you can communicate that to others in a way that's helpful. 
And I should mention that Sarah is the author of a, of a new book called Here All Along, subtitle, and then there's a sub-subtitle, Finding Meaning, Spirituality, and a Deeper Connection to Life in Judaism, subtitle, subtitle, after finally choosing to look there. Sarah, we're going to come back to that in a few minutes, but uh, let me just get us going on this segment with a question from Anne. Oh, so. great, Mike. Thank you so much. Sarah, I have a follow-up on this question of authenticity. And Mike, you'll remember that on Leadership in Action a while ago, we had faculty member from Stanford, uh, Jeffrey Pfeffer, who had at that time written a book on myth-busting in leadership truisms. And one of the myths that he attempted to bust was what he called the myth of authenticity. So what he essentially, I'm gonna paraphrase, said he argued that leadership at the very top often takes deep acting. In other words, you may or may not actually believe what it is that you're saying, but for whatever reason, you, you need to convey a message and you need to communicate it as if it is authentic and really coming from you. So if I connect this line to your comment about President Trump, who will speak very authentically about, not about truths, <laughs> but on occasion about straight out lies. <laughs> so could you help me connect the dots here? How is it that we're authentic, even if we're not telling the truth? <laughs> so totally. I mean, I think the thing that people, that's hard to untangle with President Trump is that he's incredibly authentic and also incredibly dishonest, right? Honesty and authenticity are, are kind of not the same thing. Like he is authentically a pathological liar. You know, it's just the, the stream of untruths is quite astounding. It's sort of unprecedented. And, you know, does he believe them? Does he not believe them? It, who knows? I think that's a speculating about his psyche is, is sort of a lost cause. But, you know, whatever, it, he authentically feels what he is saying. He authentically yeah. feels it. And I think if you are a leader, you know, when you have to communicate something that you're maybe unsure about, but you feel like this is actually in the best interest of my business to communicate this brave face, maybe you're maybe as a leader, you're feeling scared, you're feeling uncertain, but you need to communicate a brave yeah. face to your people. Right. So at that moment, you authentically and honestly believe, wow, I really have got to communicate a brave face. This is what is best for my for my people. I wouldn't say that that's inauthentic. You know, I, I sort of disagree about that. I don't think it's inauthentic. And I also don't even think it's dishonest. You honestly are saying, okay, I'm feeling a little bit scared, but you know what? I really need to show some strength right now to boost employee morale and to, to show people that I've got this under control. You know, I, I, don't, I don't think that that's contradictory to either authenticity or honesty. Mm -hmm. Very good. Sarah, if I may, just one follow-up. I know at the very top of the hour, um, Mike asked you a little bit about your origin story, and you told us that you began doing some freelance speech writing with a colleague in, in school, in graduate school. May I just go back one more layer? What inspired you to do that? <laughs> yeah, you know, it's funny. I had, you know, I, I had sort of enjoyed speech writing. Like, I, I sort of thought it was a fun career, even though I clearly wasn't that great at it when I was 22 years old. And meeting Josh Gotthammer, who, by the way, is a, is a Penn alum, you know, he was doing this to make money through, to get through law school. And I thought, well, that's good. That's good. And, you know, he was my friend and I just enjoyed spending time with him. And when we started doing it together, you know, there was a real joy to it. There's, there was a real joy to this partnership where we were kind of doing it together, where we were 
you know, supplementing each other's strengths and learning from each other. And so I figured like, oh, you know, I think this is actually kind of a great way to spend time during law school, which you know, for me was not the most thrilling three years of my life. You know, I realized pretty quickly that, you know, while I was glad to be getting the degree, I was not particularly passionate about the law. So it was nice to have this kind of side gig that I enjoyed. Mm-hmm. But then it began, it became your regular gig. It did, right? I mean, learning from Josh made me realize, wait a second, I actually do, I do have some skill here. It just needs to be refined. You know, I, I need to just get some of the basics down. And it was funny, our third year of law school, uh, in I think it was September, Josh called me and said, we have a new client. And I was like, okay. And he said, uh, it's kind of a presidential campaign. I said like, okay. And he said, and it's kind of an Arkansas. So I need you to get on a plane to Little Rock tomorrow. And I remember saying to him, Josh, we have evidence tomorrow. And like first thing in the morning. And he was like, don't worry about evidence. Just get on the plane. We'll figure it out. So we, we ended up spending a lot of time going back and forth between Little Rock and Cambridge to get this, this campaign done. It was quite the experience. Oh, very good. Mike, back to you. Uh, Sarah, I've got one more question on President Trump before we uh, leave that particular area. You have said elsewhere that uh, Trump is a, a kind of a media genius mm-hmm. and he's great at turns of phrase. And I've got one here that I, I think you've mm-hmm. cited. He referenced, here's the phrase, quote, boxes of ballots dumped in rivers. For me, very graphic. I think that's the point. Uh, Tell us more about not necessarily using President uh, Trump as a model here, but just in general, uh, how important is it to have those brilliant turns of phrase and and why is that important? So it's interesting. I don't think of that as a turn of phrase. That is a very concise example of showing and not telling. He has created a visual image of boxes of ballots dumped in rivers. I now see that. Right. When I talk about voter suppression and fraud and blah, blah, what does that even mean? Those are abstract concepts. Yeah. But he is talking about boxes of ballots in rivers. Like, wow, you can't unsee that. It's quite that is quite effective. Um, you know, so I think he's less about these sort of eloquent sound bites or turns of phrase and more about these kind of sticky images, you know, even just the names that he comes up with, with people for people. He managed yeah. just to, to just kind of hone in on one, you know, on something about them that might be believable to people, on something on something that might really stick. It, it's quite uh, impressive. All right, here's a very different question. Um, a very good friend of mine was a speechwriter for a U.S. senator, and he said, and this is a question for you, that uh, he would write a speech and the senator at the last minute would make changes in the speech, sometimes abandoning more than a couple of paragraphs. So this is a more personal question. Uh, what, what's been your experience and your own reaction when speeches sometimes are what you've written and sometimes are not? So I've certainly been through that uh, sort of earlier in my career. And um, I have to say, I, I don't love it, right? I, I don't, that is not the best process. I, I found that you don't get a good speech through the process of, oh, it's the night before and I'm going to blow it all up or it's the morning of and I'm just going to decide I don't want to use it. I think there is a myth that the really good speech is the one where the person comes to the podium, looks down at their remarks, tosses them aside, and just goes off the cuff. That's not true. That actually fails most of the time, right? That that actually is not a good strategy. Something I loved about working for the Obamas is that, you know, 
people often ask me, did they riff a lot? And they riffed all the time. Their whole speech was riffs, but it was done before they hit the podium. They had the respect for their audiences to really, they would meet with us in advance. So with Mrs. Obama, I would meet with her before I even started writing. And she would really dictate to me the themes, the ideas, the stories. And then we would go back and forth and she would edit it a lot. So by the time she hit the podium, it was what she wanted to say. And you know, when people say, oh, that's scripted, that's inauthentic, I always ask them this, you know, if you're a student and you're writing a paper, is it, which is more authentic? The paper that you dashed off an hour before the deadline, sort of stream of consciousness, or the one where you spent two weeks agonizing over every sentence, every word to make sure it was exactly what you wanted to convey? I mean, honestly, I think the one where you actually put in the time and effort and thought is gonna be much more authentic and it's gonna be more persuasive, it's gonna be well-structured, it's gonna be better received by the audience. So I'm not not really a big fan of the kind of last minute process scrambles. I don't think that makes for good speeches. So last question for me on, on this particular topic, and that is practicing the speech once you've got it at least etched out. So thinking again about people who are not president but are, are running a small group, would you recommend the following. I think I've got this from what you've said, but uh, correct me if I don't have it right. Uh, good to get your thoughts sketched out, back of an envelope at least, maybe even more detailed than that. The question is, is it also good just to stand in front of the mirror and try it out or with your family? What do you think? A hundred percent. I cannot begin to emphasize enough the value of practicing a speech in advance. I cannot begin to emphasize that enough because you will you will find things that don't work, right? You will try things out and they'll fall flat and you'll realize, oh, I did not want to say that. You know, that that value of practicing in advance, I think it's incredibly, incredibly important. And look, are there those rare people who do best totally off the cuff? Sure, there are some people like that. And if that's if you're one of those rare people, then don't practice. But the rest of us, practicing is incredibly important. That's great. Um, and we got a couple minutes here before a, a quick break. So okay. why don't you jump in? Very good. Uh, Sarah, I'd like to follow up and just ask you about the, the, the experience and the draw of writing for someone else. You know, Mike earns his living as a faculty member through writing and through speaking, teaching. I primarily through speaking. They pay me to talk. <laughs> but I'm used to speaking for myself to my students. But here you are speaking and writing in the voice of someone else. So can you talk a little bit about how you do that and why you do it? So, you know, I think what people often don't understand is that a speechwriter's job is not to script someone, it is to channel them. Those are two very different things. People will say, well, how much are you imposing your own ideas and language? Uh, really very little actually. The goal is to channel the person's voice. And so, you know, the way that you do that is by spending time with the person, mm -hmm. you know, not just listen to them when they're behind the podium, but I would often just show up at meetings with Mrs. Obama that weren't even about speeches, just so I could hear her talk, just so I could kind of be in the flow of her head. And mm -hmm. over time, as she edited me, I really <laughs> began to hear her voice in my head. You know, as I was writing, I would sort of almost hear her saying, okay, Sarah, this transition's a little sloppy. Or like, hey, you know, Sarah, I think we're getting bogged down in the weeds here. Like, what's really the beating heart? What are the values? What are the stories? And you know, that that's sort of how you you learn that art. But I'll say, you know, I haven't I've 
I've basically been spending most of my time now writing and speaking in my own voice. And I just find it tremendously liberating. You know, I, I just, I enjoy it so much. First of all, I have much lower standards than Mrs. Obama has, right? She has such high technical standards for her speeches and such high standards of artistry and of truth. You know, I really had to just be on my game with every speech with her. Whereas I'm like, I'm fine if my transitions aren't perfect. I'm, you know, I'm fine to be a little sloppier. So it's actually, I'm, I'm sort of, you know, it's, it's just, I have much lower standards than she does. So that's been kind of fun and liberating. Although I have to say, she was always so kind, you know, even like, even with the kind of most, you know, huge edits, she would deliver them so, so gently, like, okay, you know, I think maybe these, you know, this three quarters of the speech doesn't quite work. And here's how I'd like to, to change it. You know, she's so gentle. But, uh, you know, I, I learned a lot from her. Oh, that's that's great. great. Thank you. Sarah, I'm going to remind uh, listeners again that they, you, listeners, uh, you're all listening to Leadership in Action, Business Radio, Sirius XM, Channel 132. I'm Mike Yuseem. I'm here with Ann Greenhall. And our guest today is former Obama speechwriter Sarah Hurwitz. And Sarah, I want to turn to what we mentioned before the break, which is that uh, in your own voice, you have written a book. I'm going to repeat the title and then ask you why you wrote the book. Here all along, finding meaning, spirituality, and a deeper connection to life in Judaism. And then you've got a parenthetical phrase. I, I love the, the, the turn of the wording here. After finally choosing to look there. So what, what's behind the book? So yeah, I, the, the long title was a rookie mistake. I think I would have a shorter title this time around, but you know, I grew up with a pretty minimal Jewish background, you know, occasional synagogue attendance, kind of middling Hebrew school. And after my bat mitzvah, I just thought, you know what, I'm out, right? I'm a cultural Jew. I'm proud to be Jewish, but I, I'm not going to practice this religion. 25 years later, I broke up with a guy I was dating, had a lot of time on my hands, happened to hear about an intro to Judaism course and figured like, all right, I should just learn about my heritage. That'll be something to do. But I was really blown away by what I, I learned in that class. You know, Judaism has thousands of years of crowdsourced wisdom from millions of people about what it means to be a good person, about what, what it means to live a worthy, meaningful life, about how to find profound spiritual connection. And I was really just blown away by this. And I decided to just go deeper. So I took classes, I read hundreds of books, and I decided that I wanted to share with people what I had found, you know, what this ancient religious tradition has to offer to people today. You know, the wisdom, the most sort of radical, subversive, transformational, inspiring wisdom about how to be human, how to cope with the challenges of our lives. You know, I think that so much of what modern culture offers us is just so incredibly thin. You know, it's like you do you as long as you don't hurt other people too much. You know, it is the consumerist ethic of, you know, buy more, spend more, work more so you can buy more and spend more so you can work more. So, I mean, it is this kind of relentless, not enough, don't have enough, which just, that, that just leads to such a thin and pale and depressing life. And I think that Judaism is so countercultural. It offers such a dramatically different approach. And I wanted to share that with people. So quick follow-up on the title, which by the way, I didn't find too long myself because uh, the, the argument is there in the title. I, I know what, what the book is about. I'm going to um, get a hold of a copy myself. The final phrase is really kind of a hook. After after finally choosing to look there, that seems to imply you wish you had got at this a little bit earlier in life. So what, what do you think? 
You know, I, I do wish I had. And I actually, I'm so glad that you noted that phrase because I actually put that there because I wanted to show that this is this is a relatable book. It's a human book. It's a fun conversational book. This is not some academic tome hectoring you about you should think this like that. There are enough books like that. I wanted to show that this was going to be a fun journey, right? Just like my journey has actually been a lot of fun. It's been really meaningful. Yeah. Great. And over to you. Yeah, maybe a couple follow-ups, Sarah. So I really appreciate what you're saying about how your exploration of Judaism has enabled you to go deep rather than shallow. Can you just speak to maybe one of the lessons learned or illuminations that's been particularly helpful to you and maybe to us as listeners? Yeah, you know, I, I think I'm especially moved by the sensibility of Jewish ethics. You know, oftentimes you'll hear people say like, oh, you know, social justice is my religion. You know, being a good person, that's that's enough religion for me. And that's nice and also largely meaningless. Well, what do you, what do you mean by being a good person? What, what is social justice, right? That there's something, and if you, if you actually look at, if you actually sort of dive in deeply to the study of Jewish law, what you find is this very, very detailed approach. You know, it's not just give to the poor. It's exactly how much do you give? It's a lot, a lot of commentary on how you give. You know, do you give to people in a way that doesn't humiliate them, in a way that doesn't single them out, in a way that empowers them? So there's Jewish laws that say that even those who receive financial assistance are expected to give charity themselves because no one should feel just like a taker. You know, there's a law that says that if you've lent someone money and you know that they can't repay you, you should avoid trying to run into them in the street because that will embarrass them. It will stress mm -hmm. them out. You know, there's even a law that says that, you know, if you walk into a store and you have no intention of buying an item, you shouldn't ask the shopkeeper for the, to tell you the price of it. Now that's interesting, yeah. right? What it's saying is, wait a second, that shopkeeper is a human being who has feelings and you are not entitled to use them as an object for your entertainment. You're not entitled to get their hopes up, right? That exquisite sensitivity to the needs and the dignity of others I think flies in the face of so much of our modern mm -hmm. secular ethic, which is just kind of get what you can. And you know what, those people can all just, you know, tough for them, right? That is, it's sort of the ethic of Trump that you see kind of writ large. And I think mm -hmm. Judaism is such a challenge to that. And I, I really appreciate that, the, the details of those ethics. And I think it, you know, you often hear the old lie that Christianity is a religion of love and Judaism is a religion of law. No, mm -hmm. right? Judaism, our laws that detail our exquisite sensitivity to the needs and dignity of others, that's how we express love. That's how we enact love in our daily lives. Love is not some vague concept that we feel in our hearts. It's how we behave at every moment. Mm, that's beautiful. I love how you say that. And it brings us to leadership in action in the sense that Mike and I talk a lot about leadership being an act and not so much a role or a position but an act and what you're really talking about the everyday acts in ordinary in ordinary life. Now, if time, maybe one more for me, Sarah, and we like to ask this question on the show. When you were 10, did you think that you would be a speechwriter, you know, for <laughs> President Obama, Michelle Obama, and then an author yourself? What were you thinking when you were 10? Oh my gosh, absolutely not. I don't even think it would have occurred to me not even in my wildest dreams or imaginations. In fact, I remember in third grade when I was eight or nine writing an essay saying that I wanted to be a teacher because I just really admired my teachers. So, you know, 
I think I also said that I wanted to go to Radcliffe College because my mother was actually taking some classes at the old Radcliffe from Harvard Radcliffe. So I, I fulfilled half of that version. Um, and I've gotten some chances to do some informal teaching, but no, I never, I never imagined. Yeah. Well, one could argue that you've done some teaching through the words of others <laughs> and your own words. <laughs> and I have been so blessed and so inspired by so many extraordinary teachers. I can't even begin to express my gratitude. So I'm a, I'm a very big fan of the profession. Very good. And I can't resist. Just curious, what did you study as an undergrad? So uh, I did a major called social studies, which you spend the rest of your life explaining because it sounds silly and people say, oh, like geography or spelling? No, it's actually this, it's an interdisciplinary major that's sort of a, a combination of you know, political theory, history, economics, social theory, um, that uh, I think Oxford calls it politics, philosophy, and ethics. Yale has a version of it, and I did the version of it at Harvard. Very good. Mike, back to you. All right, Sarah, a, a quick heads up to you and to our uh, listeners. We're going to do what we always do do on this program, which is um, after action review. We're going to take a minute just to wrap up uh, with the three of us in this case, talking through very briefly what we'd like listeners to really hang on to from our great 45, uh, 48 minute discussion here. Um, ask you, uh, I'm going to ask the three of us to bring out a couple of final points. But just before that, uh, another kind of personal question. Looking back, let's say not to age 10, but age 25, what do you wish you had told yourself knowing what you know now back when you were age 25? Oh, gosh. I think I would have told myself that really there's very little that you do at that age that you can't undo. And I think I would have told myself just to be a lot less afraid. I think I was so anxious and I had this idea that success was this sort of linear series of ordinary, of, of sort of like linear series of triumphs. You just went from one success to another, to another, and every decision was so important and you had to get it just right. And that's not true. Success in politics is yeah. much more messy. It's a lot of losing campaigns, it's mistakes, it's picking yourself back up, it's mm -hmm. taking risks. And I, I think I wish I'd understood that every decision I made was not so important. Sarah, very good advice. I'm, I'm taking that in myself and I'm sure Anna is as uh, well. So now we need to take uh, literally just uh, two minutes here uh, to sum up so listeners can say yes, um, conjuring up their own after action review. What we say now is helpful to them. And I'd like all of our listeners to be doing the same thing so they have their own after action review in mind. So Sarah, beginning with you, what would you, what two or three points, I'll put it that way, would you have people really hang on to? Yeah. The importance of just asking yourself what is true at this moment when you were thinking about how to communicate. If you don't get still with that, not much is going to matter. Also, just the power of showing and not telling. I can't emphasize that enough. That is really the key to good communication. I think those are kind of the two points I would want to leave people with. Great. And Great. I would piggyback on that and say I also so appreciate, Sarah, your comments about the difference between authenticity and truth-telling. <laughs> And that you can be authentic in the telling of untruths, but authentic authenticity is really key. And then your opening comment too really sticks with me. The difference between writing for being heard 
and writing for being read. And uh, I really think that those two are very important takeaways for me. Mike, how about you? Yeah, and well, thank you on that. I've got five points I wrote down. I'm very <laughs> brief on them. Uh, one A plus, on, Mike. <laughs> uh, one is already uh, was mentioned by Sarah. Uh, show, don't tell. And by the way, that's very personal. Ann and I go into a classroom uh, almost every day, and I'm going to remind myself to show, don't just tell. Uh, get your bearings. Where are you? Who's in front of you? What's the purpose of what you're about to do? You need in a in a position of leadership to make certain that there's a call to action, either implicit or explicit. Repetition helps unequivocally drive the point home. And maybe most important of all, talk like a human being. So I think there it is, everybody. Uh, Sarah, thank you so much for joining us today. It was a great discussion. We appreciate it. Oh, thank you. It was such a pleasure to be here. Thank you for having me. All right, well, terrific. And uh, Sarah, thank you. If you got a question about us, you can find us uh, on email, businessradio at SiriusXM.com. We're on Twitter, of course. Want to thank uh, not only Sarah, of course, for uh, her great presentation on our program. I want to thank our producer, Patty Hall, our sound engineer, Chris Tuke. I'm Mike Yuseem. I'm here with Ann Greenhall. You've been listening to Leadership in Action, Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School, Sirius XM, Channel 132. For more guest interviews, check out our Wharton Business Radio Highlights podcast on iTunes and Google Play.